All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to open us in prayer, and then um, we will uh, just dive right in. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for giving us a wonderful day of worship this morning in song and in giving and in the proclamation of your word. Lord, we ask that you would continue to fill us with energy and fuel from the gospel to motivate us to leave church and continue in worship every hour of every day of every week. Tonight, as we gather back together, Lord, we're coming back to your word to try to piece it together and understand what it means to be a Baptist. Lord, not that to be a Baptist is greater than being a Christian, Lord, but we want to understand the truth of your word more accurately. And so please guide our time tonight as we look through the Baptist faith and message, look into your word, and try to solidify in our minds these wonderful truths that you have presented to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to continue in Article 4 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and we're going to look at subsection A and B, regeneration and justification. So in the 1925, they were separated. I think that uh, maybe justification came first, uh, maybe Article 5 in the 1925. I think that uh, regeneration came second. Uh, But I think that was actually in uh, Article 7, maybe. So it's separated there. Um, And then in 1963, they made some drastic changes, simplified a lot of that. And they put regeneration. They have regeneration, then sanctification, and then glorification. They don't have a section for justification. But that doesn't mean that they completely took it out. They put it in regeneration. So if you read in there, you'll see regeneration is... Then you'll see justification is. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Well, in the 2000, they re-separated it. So now we have A, B, C, D, regeneration, justification. Next week, we'll look at sanctification and glorification. So we'll start right here with uh, section A, regeneration. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace, whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. So this phrase, new birth, is where we get the phrase, um, and we see it in Scripture, you have to be born again in John chapter 3. We talked about people being born again. This is the new birth. And it says that it's a work of God's grace. That is, God is the one who regenerates. Now, we're going to look at several passages here, because uh, the tricky thing about regeneration is you don't see it happen. It's an invisible work. In, in John's gospel, it's described as, you know, you see, you hear the wind, you see the effects of the wind, but where it come from, where it goes, it, it's, it's hard to pinpoint. And so we're going to look at several passages to help us get a good grasp on what exactly regeneration is. Uh, please open up to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 11. Romans chapter 3. We're going to do uh, quite a bit of turning here, especially early on. Um, to kind of set the foundation for what we're going to be discussing. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. Um, I'm going to start in verse 10. Uh, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Then verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So this phrase, no one seeks for God, 
is vitally important when it comes to understanding what is regeneration. Regeneration seeks to fix this problem, okay? Such that before we could not seek for God, but we need to be able to seek for God so that we can respond to the gospel call in Christ. So regeneration puts an end to this no no one seeking for God. Well, how does that happen? Uh, now flip forward to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 1 and verses 4 through 5. Just as a general rule of thumb, if you were looking for a passage to commit to memory, um, extended scripture memory, the whole first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, I find myself frequently going back to over and over. Great set of scriptures to memorize. Um, we're just going to look in Ephesians chapter 2 at verses 1 and then 4 and 5. So starting here, Ephesians 2 verse 1. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But then later down in verse 4, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So regeneration takes this problem of our not seeking God. The scriptures describe that as us being dead. And regeneration makes us alive. Now I can seek after God. That's what regeneration does. So now we're going to turn to this famous passage, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. Though really, I think you could keep going in John chapter 3 and, and read in more detail about what it is that takes place in regeneration. We read about God's love of the world, and Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved, and then the judgment of God. All these things are helpful. But uh, John chapter 3, and I'm just going to start in verse 3. Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews. And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That phrase is important. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So regeneration is a spiritual birthing. It is a coming to life. The implication here in John chapter 3 is that it's an invisible work of God that we cannot see happen, but we see the effects of it happening. So we're able to see regeneration after it has taken place by looking at the effects that it has. If you'll flip forward just a little bit to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, Jesus gives us a little bit more to the picture here in verse 44. John 6, 44. Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And he says to them, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come unless the Father draws. Now go a little bit further down in verse 65 here. 65. Many of the disciples are turning back. This is hard. Who can accept this? And then we have Peter, and he says, who else will we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. Well, Jesus reiterates here in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we see the Father granting that we might come to Jesus. We see the Father drawing us to Jesus. And apart from that initial work of God, no one can come to Jesus. One final picture of this that I want us to see is in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Acts 16, 14, we see this take place in someone's life in Lydia. Acts 16, 14. It says in verse 13, on the Sabbath, Acts 16, verse 13, we went on the Sabbath outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Other translations say the Lord opened her heart to heed what was said by Paul, to respond. So it's not just a, oh, I audibly heard you. It is a. I have received what you have said. The Lord opened her heart for that to happen. So regeneration can be thought of as the first kind of event in a chain of events in the conversion of a Christian. One cannot turn to God without regeneration taking place. Now we're going to talk about in just a moment. It's hard for us to think about, okay, well, And I don't think it's good for us to think and to strictly subdivide into a sequential order of events because the 1925 and then moving into the 1963, they lump justification and regeneration together, I think, because it's really hard to kind of separate all these components. Whenever someone is converted, it's a multitude of things happening all at the same time. I hear the gospel. I'm being regenerated and drawn by the Lord. I'm willfully deciding to follow Jesus in faith and repentance. I am being justified by God. All of that kind of in a moment. Okay, But it's still helpful for us to think about, well, what order does the scripture portray it, even if it all kind of happens um, together in a moment? So with that being said, we'll go on to this next, this next section here. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin, to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this description here, a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit, has remained consistent in all iterations of this article. Here we get a good glimpse of, again, the invisible nature of, and then the visible effects of regeneration. If We won't read these two uh, chapters of Scripture, but if you want to write down Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 are two excellent chapters. Uh, Jeremiah talking about the new... They're both talking about the new covenant. Jeremiah talking about it 
um, in regards to the covenant and Ezekiel talking about it really more in regards to this heart change that takes place where God takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. So we see the phrase here. It's a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. That's what Ezekiel 36 is talking about is this heart change there. So God takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh so that we might fear him. And that brings about conviction of sin. That heart change does. Without that heart change, we could not feel conviction of sin. I'm, uh, I became a Christian old enough where I can remember what it's like to think in non-Christian ways that now I think is absurd. But then it made complete sense. A lot of my friends at the time were talking about abortion. That was really starting to flare up. Uh, a lot of my friends at the time were talking about um, homosexuality. Was uh, It was one of those things where everyone kind of understood in the Bible Belt, well, I probably shouldn't, but the people that kind of did it were edgy, and it was starting to kind of gain traction and everything. And so the conversation is gearing towards, well, but isn't love love? And I can remember what it's like to hear all these arguments and to think, oh, these are all really good, really good points. And just to be confused. And then I can see now where I'm at and, and wonder, why is it that that was so – it's because I could not I, – I couldn't understand those things. I had not had this heart change in the moment that I now have. Uh, the other day, me and Stacy were trying to find some movies for Kristen to watch. And so we're thinking back to our childhood. Well, what are some good movies? you know? And uh, every now and then I'll think of a movie and I'm like, oh, this would be terrific. Okay. In fact, I'm finding a consistent pattern. A lot of times they have Jim Carrey in them. But we go back and we're like, oh, this would be so good. And we would pull it up to watch it. And, and I'm like, oh, what did we watch when we were kids? I can remember what it's like to watch those things and not even feel a remote prick of conscience not even a remote prick and i see those things now and i'm just i like shrivel in embarrassment and disgust what accounts for such a drastic marked difference between those two realities it is a change of heart wrought by the holy spirit that that's what it is enabling us to feel this conviction of sin so um what is our part in this? God changes the heart, but then there's a role for the sinner as well, to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Repentance and faith. Faith, or we'll, I guess, get to that in just a second. I want you to notice that this sinner's response comes after regeneration sequentially, but I'm going to suggest it happens in the same moment when a sinner hears the gospel. A sinner hears the gospel. There's this deep felt conviction of sin, evidence that God is working in this person's life, and they respond by saying, "I yes, I want to do that. I want to turn from my sin. I want to profess faith in Christ. It is a sequentially after regeneration, but in the same moment of conversion. Okay. Now, again, we don't see the invisible change of heart, but we do see the result of faith and repentance. We see the result of faith and repentance. 
So this next section here, repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior. So this phrase, experiences of grace, just like regeneration, it is a grace of God. Because apart from regeneration, we could not repent and trust Jesus in faith. I thought it was interesting. I looked back at the 1925 and starting at regeneration and every article afterwards mentions something about either regeneration or the regenerate person or the regenerating work. That word keeps coming back up over and over. Now, they don't include it earlier in justification, but it keeps coming up over and over as though conversion is just one long experience of God's grace. The God's grace in regeneration. God's grace in justification, though they kind of include that before. God's grace in sanctification. God's grace in glorification. It is all an, accept, an inseparable experience of grace. Now, one aspect of repentance here that I think is lacking, that, that I would like to see more clarity on in this, is the heart aspect of repentance. It says repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. I think that is completely correct. I think that is accurate. I think that's good. I think what they're trying to get at in the heart is the word here, genuine. A genuine turning, a heartfelt turning. But I don't think genuine is as helpful here as maybe heartfelt or some other word. I think if you go back and look at the 1925, they did probably a better job of communicating that this repentance is out of a sorrowful need to be saved from sin. It's a brokenness and, and a desperate uh, recognition of your dependence upon God that kind of is fueled by disgust in our sin. Um, so again, all this change of heart and this conviction is only possible because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We don't see any of that happen. All we see is just this response and this Brokenness. So my point, I guess, in all this is that a response to repent without the regenerating heart change that is broken over sin is really nothing other than moralism. To call someone to repent is to say, stop sinning and turn to God. If there is no heart change behind that, we're basically telling someone, stop sinning. Stop sinning and turn to Jesus. That's not quite the gospel. That's not quite the gospel. Does the Christian stop sinning? Yes. Does the Christian turn to Jesus? Yes. Why does the Christian do that? Because the Christian has a new heart now. It's possible to mimic those, that faith and repentance, without a heart change and not know Jesus. And you're doing things in your own power thinking, okay, well, everything's okay. And and the scriptures, Jesus talks about, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they're going to start listing off all these works that they did. Did we not do this? Did we not do this? And I can almost see the Lord saying, that was in your own power. I didn't do that in you. I don't know you. So regeneration is this heart change that fuels our repentance and faith. Um. In, in light of that, instead of genuine, again, I think maybe heartfelt would be better, maybe a longer description. 
that being said, I think this is still accurate and still good for us to affirm in, in a good way to understand it. I want to point out also, um, it says here that they are inseparable experiences of grace. So it's two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. What this means is that one cannot have saving faith apart from repentance. For someone to say, yes, I believe, but there is no repentance, argues that that has not happened because they're inseparable. Faith without repentance is not saving faith, but a vain faith. And I want to read an excerpt here. Um, If you'd like to come look at this later, you can. If this intimidates you, I understand it did for me also. In fact, I think this might be my original one. Um, This is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This morning when I talked about how when you have one belief, it kind of logically affects a number of beliefs. Well, different theologians have gotten together and said, okay, we need to map out all these beliefs we say we have that the scriptures teach and see how they all relate to one another. This is the result of something like that. Uh, This was a gift to me. Uh, The man is no longer here. He passed within the last few years, I think. But uh, a brother in Christ named Cecil Wynn, he was a, a executive pastor at a church, did a lot of the finances. Um, he gave this to me and he said, you're going to use this one day. You're going to love having it. You're going to need it. And I remember thinking, I don't need this. I have the Bible. This is going to sit on my shelf and collect dust. I can't tell you the number of times that I see this work, this exact book, referenced and quoted in different books, Christian books, uh, pastors and sermons, different things. Most pastors' offices I've seen have a copy of this book in there. So highly commend it to you. It's really, really good, a good, good reference work. Well, I want to read an excerpt from this book. Uh, Grudem is talking about um, the, se- the idea of separating faith and repentance as a single change of the mind and the heart. And uh, here, here's what he says. It helps us to understand why some preaching of the gospel has such inadequate results today. Sometimes the gospel message becomes only believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. This watered-down version of the gospel does not ask for a wholehearted commitment to Christ. It will result in many people being deceived, thinking that they have heard the Christian gospel and tried it, but nothing has happened. They might even say something like, I accepted Christ as Savior over and over again, and it never worked. Yet they never really did receive Christ as their Savior. I think that drives home the importance that it is a joint package, repentance and faith. We cannot separate those or we risk kind of replicating what he describes here, which I have seen over and over, um, especially in student ministry, but even in some adults. So this final uh, section here, justification. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal upon principles of his righteousness of all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. Justification brings the believer into a relationship of peace and favor with God. So again, this was its own article in 1925. In the 63 version, they put it in with regeneration. Again, all these are kind of the same thing that happens. You're regenerated, respond in faith in Christ and repentance, and you're justified all kind of in this moment here. They're logically dependent upon one another, but that's the single moment of conversion. Justification is simply a legal declaration by God of our forgiveness in Christ. God makes a legal declaration 
You are forgiven in Christ, and you have his righteousness. Now, do we actually... Do we actually live out a perfectly righteous life right now? No, we do not. God is declaring something about us that otherwise you would never know is true of us. It's a legal declaration. God isn't changing us in the moment of salvation to be perfectly holy and set apart. That's why we have the process of sanctification, which we'll look at next week. And it results in glorification when we will finally be free from sin. So right now, justification is simply a legal declaration that we are forgiven in Christ. I declare you are forgiven. I declare you have Jesus' righteousness, even though you still sin. It is a fantastic, wonderful doctrine. It enables us to have a relationship with God. And it comes before we live lives of holiness. Whenever we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, boom justified before i do the single work for him i am justified it's terrific one easy way to remember it that i'm assuming is just the traditional baptist thing if not i'm shocked but it's the word justified it's justified never sinned justified justified never sinned that is how god views us though we have sinned we are legally declared to be righteous and forgiven of our sin. Our sin's been paid for in full. So that's why it talks about that we are acquitted upon the principles of his righteousness. So Jesus has paid for our sin. We are freed from that. We no longer owe the debt. And it applies to all sinners who repent and believe. And now we have peace and favor with God. So in light of those things, and there's so much more that could be said about these we're not doing systematic theology right now. We're just doing what does the Baptist faith and message teach? There's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes in these things that we could talk about. But the purpose of, of our gathering is just to say, what does the Baptist faith and message teach? And, and, and to apply that. So that's what we've done. Um, let me give you uh, three points of application. And uh, you see there, I just have it. Last week, it was three warnings concerning how we think about and share the gospel. This week, it's three more warnings uh, concerning how we think about and share the gospel. Um, I just thought I didn't intentionally plan it that way, but it just worked out that way, so I phrased it that way. Here's the first one. Regeneration and justification are how the gospel works. Regeneration and justification are how the gospel works. They are not the gospel. And I'm going to unpack that for you in a moment. Regeneration and justification are how the gospel works. They are not the gospel. So now let me unpack that for you. Regeneration and justification are how the gospel works. They are not the gospel. When I share the gospel with someone, I don't go up to them and say, hey, let me ask you a question. Have you experienced the new birth of regeneration or let me share the gospel with you, and then I'm going to ask you, do you feel this miraculous thing happening inside of you where now suddenly th th – that's not what the gospel is. I don't call someone to be regenerated. I don't call someone to be justified. What I call for is for someone to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. My job is not to do the justifying or the regenerating or anything else. My job is to share the gospel. God's work 
is to do the convicting through the Holy Spirit and the replacing of their heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Those are all God's works. In my sharing the gospel with someone, they don't have to fully understand all the mechanics behind how salvation works in order to be saved. In the same way that I don't have to know how a picture comes up on a television screen when I hit the power button. I don't need to know how that works. All I need to know is where to hit the power button. Hit it here. Bloop. Comes up and I'm going to enjoy it. I don't have to know how that works. No one has to understand these things in depth in order to come to saving faith in Christ. What they need to know is, I am a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. And I cannot straighten my life up. And I deserve God's wrath. I deserve punishment and judgment. But I've heard that Jesus has died for me. And that if if, if I turn to him in faith and repentance, in sorrow and brokenness over my sin, I will be saved. So I want to do that now. That, that's all it requires. That, that is the gospel. You don't have to know how all those things apply. That being said, it is helpful for us, extremely helpful, to understand these things. But it's not necessary as a part of a gospel presentation. So that's... Well, we do have to make them understand that it's a convention. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Yes, it is a commitment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that can happen as you unpack what it is to have faith and to repent. Because those are, and really that's a good way to think about your gospel presentation is, what are you calling the sinner to do? What do they need to know in order to make that response? So I'm calling a sinner to, a sinner, I'm calling a sinner to respond in faith and repentance. Okay, well repentance from what? To whom? Now I can unpack Will you repent from your, and I think, for, from your sin, I think Wayne has a picture in here that's really, really good. It's of um, an individual, and he's kind of got his back to Jesus, and he's holding this big rock, and it says sin, and he's carrying this rock, and then Jesus is behind him, calling him to come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And so this faith and repentance is the person looking back, hearing and believing and then turning to place this burden upon Christ. So now I'm not carrying this around in my strength. I've given it to him. I am free from that burden. And it is a, I have to give him everything. And so I think unpacking the faith and repentance is good. I don't think you necessarily have to explain exactly how regeneration works and all these things. Those things are helpful at certain moments, but not necessary for a gospel presentation. Um, so here's number two. The results of a witnessing encounter, the results of a witnessing encounter are not dependent upon you. The results of a witnessing encounter are not dependent upon you. Here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that God doesn't need us for witnessing encounters. He calls us to share the gospel. I have to go to people and share the gospel. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is someone will not ultimately reject God because you were just not good enough at sharing the gospel. God can bring about regeneration in someone from a wonderful, eloquent presentation of the gospel just as much as he can from a bare-bones presentation of the gospel. I've seen God use... People, evangelists who go up and have extended conversations with someone over two hours, 
I've seen God use a gospel tract that is no more than two or three pages. And someone read that and accept it and then give their life to Christ. Okay? It's not dependent upon you. And this is really helpful for us in evangelism. You don't change hearts. You can't change hearts. Only God can change the heart. Your job is not to change their heart. You can't make someone feel desperately broken over their sin. When you recognize that that's just not the case, that doesn't mean that you failed in your gospel presentation. That's not your work. That's the Lord's work. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Your work is to share the gospel. And so we, it, this should be freeing for us as we remember and witnessing, okay, I'm just called to be faithful. God is going to be the one who saves. That's the second one here. Here's the third one. Evidence of regeneration provides better assurance. Evidence of regeneration provides better assurance than recalling a decision. Evidence of regeneration provides better assurance than recalling a decision. Now, I'm not saying that recalling a decision that someone has made can't give you assurance. Absolutely it can, okay? I'm saying evidence of regeneration is a better, more sure assurance. You cannot see regeneration happen, but you can see that it has happened. You can't see the moment it happens, but you can see the evidence of it. Faith and repentance will be a regular part of the Christian life for those who have been born again. Every Christian, I think, at some point will wonder and question, have I actually been justified? I can remember right now, plain as day, I was driving down Palmetto in Benton, and I'm listening to, uh, I, I don't know if it was a podcast then, or if it was just a YouTube video and I'm just listening to it. But it's a talk show host, a Christian talk show host, and his name was Todd Friel. He has this show called Wretched, and uh, it's it's very unique, I guess is uh, uh, accurate to say. But I'm listening to him talk, and he had said something and uh, was talking about holiness and the pursuit and repentance. And I remember having this moment. I don't remember what exactly Todd was saying, but I remember having this moment of thinking, Am I sure I'm really a Christian? <laughs> am, am I sure I really know Christ? I don't, I don't think quite like that. And that seems right. And I don't know if I have that deep of conviction about these things. I can remember that. I think that we all at some point have this moment where we look at another Christian and we say, Man, that Christian is further along in their understanding or in their walk of holiness. I'm nothing like that. Do I even know Jesus? The best evidence of regeneration is not perfection or measuring up to everyone else. Okay? The answer is not how many Christian things have you done or how frequently do you do them. The answer is not how sincere were you when you made that decision at one point or another. I'm going to read from Grudem one more time because he just says it perfectly. He says this, genuine love for God and his people, heartfelt obedience to his commands, and Christ-like character traits that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, demonstrated consistently over a period of time in a person's life, simply cannot be produced by Satan 
or by the natural man or woman working in his or her own strength. These can only come about by the Spirit of God working within and giving us new life. I cannot look at someone and assure them with this. This is an internal assurance that the Lord reveals to us. You are my creature. I've given you new birth. Regeneration, the evidence of it, I believe, provides a better assurance than just recounting a decision that I've made. Okay, I'll close this out and we'll be, we'll be dismissed. Lord God, thank you so much as we contemplate and marvel at what exactly happens when you save a sinner from his or her sin. Lord, it is a wonderful gift of your grace. Nothing that we deserve, nothing that we have earned, nothing that we can take credit for, because it is you who draws us, even though we are turning from you in rebellion. Even while we are still sinners, you have died for us, and you call us to yourself and draw us to you so that we might respond in faith and repentance. Thank you for such a gift of grace, Lord, because we don't deserve it, but you freely give it to us. What a marvelous gift. Please continue to stretch us, stretch our minds as we contemplate the deep things of your word. Show us, Lord, the relevance for these things in our lives every day this week as we look with new, fresh eyes, equipped with better belief in your word. Help us to see these things as being true in the created order. Reaffirm these truths daily to us, that they might solidify, that we might continue to grow in sanctification and knowledge, that it might bleed over into our lives, fueling us for further obedience. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. We pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.